You found it, the Japan Web Podcast, blowing hot air to the back end of Tokyo. I'm your co-host, actually host, Matt Bigelow. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, today's a little bit of a different format. We've got uh, quite the guests coming up for you today. The guest is the founder of the Raindance Film Festival, uh, one of the largest film festivals on the earth focusing on independent acts as well as independent entrepreneurial spirit, which I am quite into these days. After spending some time with some high rollers in the past few years of my life, uh, I've come to realize that entrepreneurs are some of the most creative people you'll ever meet in your life. Now, I've spent my whole life being creative. And I've spent my whole life being entrepreneurial, you know, moving to Japan and forging a life for myself here in the private industry. Uh, but was I always entrepreneurial with my creativity? Not so much. Because a lot of people who are creative feel like business is icky. And we're here to tell you, yeah, it kind of is. But it doesn't always have to be. Uh, in fact, the market is the interface between your creativity and whoever you want to access it. That market could be through social media, through radio, through film, through anything. You can spend all day in your room being as creative as you like. But if you want to get your creativity out of your room, you need an interface and you need a market. And that's what we talk about on today's podcast. Uh, you'll notice that it's just me flying solo at the moment because the creator of Raindance is a busy guy. He doesn't have all day to sit around waiting in a Zoom meeting for us podcasters. <laughs> no, Elliot was very generous. And I thank him for being on today's show. Uh, so please remember, you can go to MatthewPMBigelow.com to access the podcast directly. We're on most podcast platforms now. Spotify, iTunes, uh, Overcast, all of those podcatchers. We should be in there. Um, also remember, we do exclusive art every week. We're one of the few podcasts that do that. It's not just a picture of our faces looking wanky and, <laughs> and goofy. <laughs> Look at us. We're podcasters. Uh, I do all the art myself. I take the pictures, I edit them, I format them, and I make them compatible with the market so that hopefully those of you out there can enjoy. We've been doing pretty good in the ratings, looking good. We're, we're, we're pretty high up there in the travel and places ratings on the on the old chartable and i thank everybody for tuning in for sharing and for letting each other know that there is a lifestyle business fun freedom loving podcast for you here in japan that doesn't just try to focus on us being 
the introductories of Japan to some sort of audience that wants to know more about this mysterious country. Uh, it's frank, open discussions for you to learn from, I hope, or laugh at. I don't know. Am I getting preachy? I'm not really sure right now. But with that, I'd like to introduce you, the listener, the brave listener, the smart listener, the listener that makes this all possible. Introduce you to Elliot. Elliot Grove. Here we go. Elliot Grove is a Canadian-born film producer who founded both the Raindance Film Festival in 1993 and the British Independent Film Awards in 1998. Early on, he developed a distaste for the wasted resources on set and union bureaucracy that prevented aspiring filmmakers like himself from getting their own features off the ground. Elliot moved to London in the late 1980s. In 1993, he launched Raindance Film Festival, a festival devoted to independent filmmaking and its emerging talent. The 2017 festival lineup included nearly 100 independent features and 150 shorts, web series, music videos, and VR experiences selected from submissions from 119 countries. Elliot lectures on screenwriting and filmmaking throughout the UK, Europe, North America, and Japan. Upholding the ethos of Raindance, Elliot wrote, produced, and directed 1997's feature, Table 5, for just over 200 pounds. In 2009, the Raindance Film Festival had approximately 669 attendees, followed by 4,694 in 2010. I just wanted to say 69 twice. Their website claims <laughs> 13,500 attendees in 2012 and 80,000 online followers uh, on Facebook, plus over 100,000 on Twitter and 100,000 on Instagram. On July 5, 2020, he appeared on the Japan What podcast, which was hosts Matt Bigelow's 40th birthday at 6.30 a.m. in the morning. Elliot, thanks for coming on the podcast. Well, happy birthday to you, Matt. <laughs> Thank you very much. Cheers, lads. It's a coffee. Thanks man. for coming on the show, Elliot. <laughs> nice talking to you again. Even though we talk all the time, yeah, we do talk a lot. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was a very that was a very flattering introduction, um, Matt. Very flattering. Seems like a long time ago, nineteen ninety three. Mm. Yeah, that's before the uh, Kurt Cobain unplugged show. <laughs> um, and well, be and well before your fortieth birthday. Well my before that. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, Elliot, just to. Um, bring things to japan off the top of the interview it says yeah. in the uh, i was kind of copying and pasting from some online resources for that interview um and it says that you you lectured in japan mm -hmm. um can you let's just begin with japan because it's the japan what podcast so uh what what's the appeal of of lecturing or or filmmaking in japan well first of all uh, the japanese um history of storytelling is is just absolutely amazing. And the history of cinema, some of the fantastic uh, cinemato cinematographers, directors, actors, and storytellers you've had here are just wonderful. And Japanese cinema has inspired a whole generation of Western movies. When I was here about 10, when I was here about 10 years ago with Uni Japan, I did a week workshop, screenwriting workshop. 
to about a, do, a two dozen people um, in the center of Tokyo. One of them was a 74-year-old fisherman. And at the end of the week, I asked the group what made a good story. And he said to me through an interpreter, Elliot San, your body is 75% water and a good story forces your body fluids out of an appropriate pore, which I think if you can succeed at that as a musician or a dancer or a musician, filmmaker, I think that's what it's all about, squeezing the emotion out. Of the cock. <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. That's... <laughs> um, indeed. And why was a 74-year-old fisherman at a film festival? Was but he, he had written 51 Yakuza movies that got made. One of them was sold to Tarantino, and that became Kill Bill. And I was oh. very fortunate to meet him. What was his name? Do you I remember? Forgot, I've totally forgotten. Mm. Wow. wow. It, it, did, can you remember anything else about this guy? I mean, he wrote Kill Bill? He, he spoke perfect English, except when he wanted to say something philosophical. Then he spoke in... Um, in Japanese, but he, um, he, he had spent a lot of time in New York. I should, I'm sure somewhere there's a screen credit. I, anyway, uh -huh. or, or I know someone here who might remember who that is. Um, someone in Tokyo rather. And well, anyway. Okay. What was the response like for what right off the bat, my mind is blown. Um, what was, the response like from the from the japanese audiences that you were lecturing to well it was really strange because um and then i did something two years ago with mike down at the atomi film festival uh, you you make a point and half the audience goes silent i guess this part that understands english and there's a lot of rustling and then the translation and then the other half goes silent same when you tell a joke <laughs> Half the audience laughs, and thirty seconds later, the other half of the audience laughs. <laughs>, laughs. It's quite interesting, but I think I think the thing that makes Rain Dance unique, and I'm patting myself on the back very firmly here, is that we combine the best of the old traditional storytelling and cinematic uh, traditions with the best of the very new, the stuff that's beyond the horizon, and there's a great deal of appeal to that to anyone who's entrepreneurial. And the other basic thing is that we believe that uh, filmmakers are storytellers and they have to be creative entrepreneurs because you need to match up the storytelling creativity with the financial creativity. And people who are successful can manage to do that. My first intern way back in the early 90s for nine months was a guy called Edgar Wright. I'm not sure how well known he's known in Japan, Baby Driver being his last movie, for example. <clears throat> And he was always very aware that if he had an idea for a shot or camera movement, that it would cost X amount of money. And then I met uh, Chris Nolan, used my original oh, wow. office uh, as one of the production bases for um, the following, his, his first film. And he decided to shoot his film chronologically. And he, none of these guys had film training. So... <clears throat> If you look at his first film shot in 16 millimeter, because he had no money for lights, anytime there was an interior scene, the actors stood in front of the window because they had light. And then if you look, ah. at, mm. if you look at his expensive movies, even it's become a habit, even his big movies, when there's dialogue scene, interior dialogue, they are usually standing in front of a window because 
that's what he learned. And then uh, when he was shooting the following, he had one roll of film left, had a, a scene with a guy running through the market on Barrick Street, if you know London, and, and was no good sound, but he'd run out of film stock. So he, put a, he did a French take with the actor, running down with the camera and recording the sound only. And luckily that matched up. And then years later, he's on Brooklyn Bridge doing one of the Batman movies with Christian Bale. And it was six o'clock, they had to pull the blood because it was triple time union, but they needed one more shot. So he sent everyone home, kept the camera person in Christian Bale and went over and did the same thing on a $200 million film because he had taught himself the practicalities of filmmaking, which are not difficult. It's just, you just have to do it. That's amazing. Did, did, um, what was Chris Nolan's original movie? 16 millimeter. Yeah. 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 Did that have anything to do with the rain dance film festival? Well, we showed it. Um, but then he went back to, he went to LA and about 18 months later, got $6 million to make Memento, which is essentially a remake of the following. The following, the total budget was about uh, in dollars, US dollars, $5,000, five or $6,000. Wow. I loved that movie, 16 millimeter. And Memento mm. was also a great movie. Mm. It, it employed some like a 1950s film noir narrative aspects where yeah. um, the character always keeps forgetting what he's doing or where he's going, but the yeah. viewer doesn't. So as the yeah. film progresses and the character keeps forgetting yeah. what's happening, the viewer yeah. understands more and more and more and more. So <laughs> the viewer can anticipate what's going to happen before the um, the main character in the film. It's a fantastic mm. movie employing a lot of crazy mm. um, narrative aspects. If you Google Memento on Wikipedia, you will come up with a diagram that he and his brother jo Jonah, Jonathan, made where they track all the plot points and relate it to a very deep psychoanalysis by some famous now dead Russian and Swedish philosopher. It's quite brilliant, actually. Yes. Uh, um, and but anyway, that's that's a long topic. But the, the point, go back to your original question, Matt. Uh, the the Japanese uh, culture has always been very deeply philosophical too, like the movies of Chris Nolan. Um, I guess I guess to agree that movies that I like are very philosophical. Although the first movie I saw was not philosophical at all. Your first movie? Yeah. What was, what was your what what was that about? Well, I grew up on a farm outside Toronto. Uh, my parents were members of a rather unusual Protestant sect called the Amish, the horse and buggy people. And I was always told two things never to do as a young kid. Number one, I was told never go to the movie theater because Why? the devil lived there, and my grandparents. <laughs> <laughs> And my grandparents would say things to me like, you don't want to be caught dead there when Jesus comes back, do you? So I was forbidden to go to the movie theater. And the second reason I was told, um, the, the second lesson I was told was never to have sex standing up. Are these connected uh, to each uh, other? 
well, they're both things I was told not to do. Never go to the movie theater and never have sex standing up. Because is, is that a, sex standing up? Is that a thing? I kind of thought, no. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm well, 50%. I'm 50. I got half that I'm covered. <laughs> standing up, no. <laughs> My parents told me that if you had sex standing up, it could lead to dancing. And that was forbidden. It's usually <laughs> the other way around, Elliot. <laughs> Anyway, anyway, so it was hot summer's day, August, harvest season. Uh, lunchtime, a part breaks down at the farm. My dad can't fix it. I'm the kid who gets sent to the local village outside Toronto. Damn, the, the, the blacksmith is going to take three whole hours. It wasn't worth me going all the way home, going back. But I was 16. It was a hot summer's day. It was about two o'clock in the afternoon. I had a few coins in my pocket and I was wondering what the devil looked like. And there it was, the house of the devil just down from the house of the Lord. I walked up to my amazement. They were only charging 99 cents to see what the devil looked like. So I paid my money. I walked down this like tunnel into this big room, a bit like church, you know, with chairs all lined up facing the front. I sat down, a couple of other people. It was about two o'clock in the afternoon that day. Matt, they turned the flipping lights off. I had no idea what was going on. I had no idea what a movie was. People said, just never go in there. But the curtains slowly opened. And the first face of the devil I saw at the most tender age of 16 was Lassie comes home. <laughs> the devil indeed. And I cried like a baby. And at the end, I went up to put my hands on the screen to see if I could feel it was all gone in a twinkling of eye. And that's really what got me into movies. So wait, wait, wait. So at, when you went home, you went home and told your parents you saw the movie. No, right? I did not tell. Oh, nobody. oh no, I no. Mm, mm. that was my big secret. Wow. So you kept it. You kept it a secret because you you knew about the religious um, impacts. Well. I, I did want to upset the mom and dad, you know, I didn't want to upset the community in the same way that Chris Nolan, when he told his parents, he wanted to be a filmmaker, they said, why do you want to do that? So when I first met him, he was studying English at a university in the center of London. While he was there, he joined the film society because they had a cupboard full of free equipment. And that's what he used to make his first shorts. That's when I met him when he graduated to get a job at the local boots, the chemist stacking shelves always kept friends with the film society and used that equipment to shoot the following on. Um, oh. I'm kind of noticing a little bit of um, a, a trend here, um, aside from the, the religious background, is um, using your money or using um, funds appropriately and equipment. And even in the, in the, in the bio that I read, it said that um, you were, uh, you know, kind of union bureaucracy and wasted resources preventing people from accessing the mm. market. Um, can you expand on that, Elliot? If you want to make a movie, uh, there's two different routes. You can go the industry route, which means the budgets are going to rocket. There's going to be lots of fees. If you do it yourself and finance it with your friend's money or do crowdfunding, uh, and someone wants 10 bucks for a roll of tape, you're gonna wonder why it's not five bucks like everywhere else. But to give you a, a little analogy, my office is, my old office is right, both offices, my office is in the center of London, the office before I met Mike. 
And it's right near Oxford Circus. It was the first relaxed intersection where you could walk diagonally as, as well as on the 90 degrees around the circuit. And it cost 10 million pounds. Was that $15 million to make this um, intersection? One day, a good friend of mine, who you may have heard of, his name is Roland Gift. His band in the late early 90s was called Fine Young Cannibals. And his big hit, She Drives Me Crazy, your listeners yeah. might know that. He comes in, he wants to make a movie. I was working with him on producing a movie, which has yet to be made. I thought I could do it for 150,000. He wanted to do it for a million. And I said, I was trying to explain to him that there was not really a big difference between the million and 150,000. Meanwhile, while Roland was there, my another friend comes in who's a builder, a guy who does renovations in London. And we were talking about this 10 million job up there. And he said, you know, this intersection, I just stepped it out. It's about 40 meters by 40 meters. I counted the bricks. And he said to me, Elliot, if you gave me a, a field, I could put that same intersection in for about 50,000, not 10 million, and still have enough left over to give you a good, what they call in Britain, drink, i.e. bribe. Yeah. Oh, oh, interesting. So Roland from Fine Young Cannibals, who'd been up and down the musical industry cycle, said to me, why is it 50,000? Why is it 10 million and not 50,000? And the builder said to me, and Roland, consultancy fees. Yeah. You see, the more people you have, the more lawyers, the more accountants, the more advisors, the more producers' fees, the more office space, the more potted palms, and the budget just mushrooms. So I've found that friends of mine who've made films for three and four hundred thousand dollars often make a film that looks like, um, you know, three, four million. We had a film the year Mike was there, Old Lucy, uh, with Josh Hartnett, a Hollywood star, total budget just under three hundred thousand dollars. Friends of mine who saw that in the business, in the industrial business, estimate that budget of being two to three million dollars. What it wasn't, it was two to three hundred thousand. 90% less. So independent filmmakers know how to be cost effective. But the other thing to remember too, on these 50, 100, $200 million films that you read about, that money includes the marketing budget. And that's where a lot of independent filmmakers fall down. They have the money to get it in the can, get it edited and get it finished, but they don't have the money to promote and market the film. And one thing I've learned the hard way is as Mike will tell you, if you don't have a, someone dressed up in a costume banging a drum outside the cinema, be it virtual or in person, then no one's going to come in to see your damn film unless you've got Brad Pitt or someone like that in your film. Which is basically yeah. the same thing, even though he's a great actor. That, that Brad yeah. Pitt brand name serves as the person banging and shouting outside of the movie theater. <clears throat> It's marketing. It's all about marketing. It's all about marketing. You know, one thing I, I want to tell Matt, like um, a film festival like Rain Dance, they provide the venue, the theater, everything. They provide everything, but it's up to the directors to get people in into the theater to watch the movie. So they've got to make some kind of effort. They've got to make some kind of promotion. They they have to do something to get the people in there because it's not the duty of the film festival to get the people inside to see of course the film festival they're they're promoting their their festival they're in magazines and in tv and radio or whatever but each individual movie is up to the director or producer to um get 
basically butts in the seats. Interesting. So, so regarding that, what have been some clever ways these entrepreneurial filmmakers have budgeted their way into packed <laughs> theaters with people dying and clambering and collaborating with each other to get in? Well, Mike, 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 when I first time met Mike, he was wearing a sandwich board outside the cinema in Leicester Square. If you don't know London, that's right in the biggest cinema square in Europe. And he stood there for five days and nights with a sandwich board with the poster of his film. And the film sold out and we put on, was it two extra shows? And they all screened, uh, 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 sold out. Yeah, and he came yeah. back with another film uh, the following year and did the same thing. And those shows also uh, sold out. So that was very effective. Um, another time we had, well, when we had Blair Witch Project, that was just, that was, that was insane because of the publicity with that, but that was a much bigger publicity project. We have um, uh, celebrities, uh, sporting celebrities, music celebrities, who basically go on their social media and just pump the hell out of it. Um, uh, last sep September, uh, to give you the contrast, uh, we, uh, our programmer selected a British film by an unknown British director. They thought it was pretty good. Gave them the big screen on a Thursday night at a prime time. And as a filmmaker, Mike will tell you, you get 10 free tickets that you can give to your friends or whatever. So he showed up with his nine friends. We sold three tickets. And so I go in to introduce the film in the biggest screen that should have been packed to the rafters, which would have meant commercial success for us. So I couldn't pay myself for a week because we lost so much money on that one screening. That's like the he, 220 seat yeah, theater. Yeah. He stood up and basically in front of his friends blamed me for the lack of marketing. We had worked our socks off on that, but a film by someone that no one's ever heard of mm. with people that no one's ever heard of. You know, it's the same as the music, um, the music business. You start with your band, you pay a 20 seater, 30 seater, 50 seater, 200 seater. Then maybe you get the big crack at the 500 seater. And then maybe you get this stadium of 10,000. You just don't walk into the stadium of 10,000 expected to be full. It just doesn't work like that. Mm. Anyway. Well, when, when I was out there doing the sandwich sign man, yeah. I noticed so many directors would walk in and one, you know, three or four of them would walk in and they would point at me and they'd say, that's a good idea. I wonder how much that pays. And I thought to myself, I, I used to be in a punk band like in the late seventies. It doesn't yeah. cost anything. <laughs> you just got to make the effort for it, huh, yeah, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, oh, wait. So that, let me brag then. So Elliot says that I'm the first um, director or producer who ever sold out three nights in a row or yeah, three nights. You were good. You were good. What was the movie, Mike? Matsuchio. Okay. And, and Ghost Roads sold out two nights. Ghost yeah. Roads is about a... Um... A, a haunted amplifier <laughs> for a punk yeah. rock, or a, a, a rockabilly <laughs> band, and Matsuchio. What, sorry, what, I can't. I always get that last part mixed up. Life of a Geisha. Life of Matsuchio. a Geisha. Um, yeah. yeah, that's uh, so you you. Managed, they're both crap movies. <laughs> so that's like the entrepreneurial spirit where you just go out there. Um, one thing that we've been focusing on this podcast, um, Elliot, is. The, how do uh, how do creative people um, and venue operators um, find a common ground? 
What in the pandemic? Uh, well, well, there's that, but also in, in terms of understanding each other um, for for mm. advertising, because uh, sometimes it's not exactly clear. Well, at, at the success of Rain Dance and the reason that we can be we hold our festival in the center of London in the most expensive cinema uh, rental in Europe. Mike's been there a couple of years now. Yeah, it's pretty pretty swish. Yeah, is it not <laughs> very? Is because when we go, we first of all we formed a good personal relationship with the events manager, the guy that books the cinema, and that's another key point. I don't care what industry or what creative industry you're in. It's all about creating a personal relationship. I'm very good friends with Mike, and that's because I'm with you here today, Matt. Yeah, I really you know, appreciate and, it, by the way, Leanne. Yeah, yeah. So, so there's that. And then I sit down every year with the festival producer and the events manager, and we go through the nuts and bolts. He asks us what we want, and whatever we want, red carpet or this or that, it's got a price attack. Someone's got to pay for it. So we tot it all up. And then because he knows us, he gives us a bit of a discount and we write a big fat check. So, I mean, it's, it's a business. I look at it as a business. When I get the discount, I used to think it was because Raindance made his uh, commercial American chain look cool, which it does. Mm, mm. But you know what? That does not affect his bottom line. Mm. He's doing that as a personal favor to me because he belongs and he likes what what we're doing, the kind of music we're playing in his venue, so to speak. Mm. So it's very interesting, uh, uh, you know, balancing um, game that we need to, we just need to be respect the other person's cost of doing business. I have had so many people ask me, oh, can I submit my film to your festival for free? And we do give fee waivers to people who live in dire straits in countries where there's no currency and there's, political turmoil like now iraq iran for example mm. but if i get an email like that from someone in i say boston or for that matter tokyo i say no because our festival is self-funded someone's got to be paid to watch your stinking movie right. and if we give you a fee waiver guess what we're going to put it in the bottom of the list we're mm. going to deal with the, the paying customers first so that's i mean i sound very grand here um, but I think most people in the creative industries who fail, fail because they don't understand the commercial side of it. Yeah. And Matt, I know nothing about you, but you're doing this podcast. Someone has to pay for the gear and someone's had to launch that good looking spaceship. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> My space elevator is not cheap. <laughs> well, so El Elliot, so. We've only got like another 10 minutes, Matt. Yeah, we got about can six you, minutes, 30 seconds. Can you yeah. tell us about all the exciting things Raindance is doing online and then your Twitter, everything? Yeah, yeah. that was going to be a we, good point, yeah. When, when the pandemic hit, I realized that we needed to do something quick. So we put everything online. We developed a series of, of lockdowns, which you can get from Japan, that would be free to our members or eight pounds for not. They're one hour long top experts. I then went to a list of over 50 of the industry people that I knew, because I knew they were at home. All but one said yes. And they all delivered fantastic content. So our social media has just blossomed like that. That's our film school, our MA and BA now, and our two-year college are doing very well, believe it or not, because people have time. Um, the festival, we've had to sadly put it 
online because we're not sure what's going to happen at the end of October. I'm speaking to you on the 5th of July. You're in Tokyo. London is just opening up. It could well close down. And what's happening beginning of July in America is truly frightening. Mm. Truly frightening. So we thought we would go the safe route and put uh, as much as we could online. We may be able to have a few smaller events to do the so-called hybrid. But basically, we, the content's king. And as you know, Matt, from your, your podcast, if you have shitty content, people listen for two minutes and they ring off. If you've got something that's good, they're likely to come back next week. Yeah. And at some point, possibly, you, you, you can monetize the podcast too. I'm not sure what your model is. That's that's it. I'm trying to. We're still in the early phases, past the six month phase, and um, we've been doing good in the charts, and that's exactly it. I want to get more data, more data, and then turn that data into some advertising um, dollars to fund the the projects yeah. here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So wait, so Elliot, you're going to have the screenings online. Yeah, and where can people see that? Go to the Raindance website. Um, mm -hmm. We are probably going Raindance to... Raindance.org. Yeah, Raindance.org. We're going to um, make the tickets free, but pay what you can. We're going to do... A, we're going to launch a busking program where you... You like bus... You know, I'm assuming you guys know what a busker is. Oh, yeah. yeah sure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so yeah. you can watch the film for free, but we're going to say, hey, how about 50 or uh, one pound, two pounds, three pounds... <laughs> Uh, we did a trial two weeks ago with a short filmmaker, 11 minutes short, followed by a 20 minute Q&A with just two minutes busking, tipping, we call it. He made 1300 pounds. That's about $1,700. Mm. That's awesome. That's also called, by the way, the value for value system, which is something that mm -hmm. Adam Curry, the founder of podcasters, the creator of podcasters, uses for one of his shows called the No Agenda Podcast, where... Okay. You, you don't there's no tier system it's just whatever you want to yeah. pay one cent a thousand dollars and then they get yeah. the rich people and the poor people who have the same interests and vector them into the same um, hierarchy it's a very interesting yeah. model the value for value system yeah yeah and well tell us about like you're you're doing something on twitter some twitter or uh, twitter.com slash raindance at raindance for all is your that raindance is? twitter needs yeah you're doing some interviews of directors or people like that what what's what on going instagram on every day at 1300 british time mm -hmm. which would be what nine in the night your time i interview a new filmmaker or as an old filmmaker mm. and i've done over 100 of them i started doing it in the middle of march when the lockdown started happening in the uk Sometimes I do two a day, sometimes three a day, <laughs> but I do one every single day, if nothing else. So I've been doing that now for 14 weeks time, say nine, so you get an idea of how many. And they, they people network with each other. Mike, you were on that some weeks yeah. ago now. Yes. But people see, they get to know each other, they put in, and they were finding on Instagram, there's films starting and there's actors getting work, editors getting work, blah, blah, blah. It's really exciting. And that's the other thing, Matt, I should point out that the successful creatives that I know, as Mike is, and you are, are very good at networking. Oh, I, I'm not so good at networking, I don't think. Nobody wrote to me after, after the <laughs> <laughs> That's my next question, um, Elliot. It, it kind of ties in with that, with social media and networking. A lot of people see... Uh, so we can say like um, coming from film and, and traditional 
um, artistic backgrounds, some people see social media, even you know, TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, whatever you want to call it, uh, as a competitive um, artistic form. What do you think about integrating social media into traditional storytelling formats? Oh, I think it's fantastic. I think that the the, the, the um, technical limitations on Instagram, if you want to do something, do it under one minute. So how can you tell a story under a minute? Also, how can you integrate um, using AR, MR, AR, where you have headsets and people talking with each other? There's so much uncharted territory, Matt, that I, I, I just don't know what to do. Right before I came out of the living room here in London, I was watching um, Saturday Night Live and the house band, because of the pandemic, the bass players in her house somewhere, the guitars in his penthouse flat, the drummer somewhere else, and they're all playing simultaneously, exactly as we're speaking simultaneously now. Wow, that's amazing. So let's say that at Raindance Festival, we want to have a band play, but because of, at the moment, Americans can't come to, uh, to Europe, and guess why? But let's say you wanted any American band, you could pipe them in from their homes, play them on the screen like this. And you save the hotel, the airfare, probably would have to get the pay the band practically nothing because they're so bored. I mean, celebrities everywhere have nothing to do. And your musicians and actors who are normally on stage or touring have nothing to do. And if you wanted them to your studio, Matt here or Mike in Tokyo, you basically need to set it up the mechanics where the different instruments are playing on the different screens and record mm -hmm. them. Uh, I, I'm a big fan of a Canadian band called The Band. I was a roadie for them when I was 16 years old. And if you Google um, Ringo Starr and Robbie Robertson doing their big hit, The Weight, it mm. is played by about 100 different musicians around the world. Whoever mixed that was a genius. But you see, the, 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 this pandemic and, and the, what it has done is altered the whole distribution uh, channel. And the other thing that happened in Britain after the World War II, all the celebrities and all the arts guys got together to re-examine how cinema and theatre were going to be distributed following World War II, which devastated London. And that's when we got the Edinburgh Film Festival and the, the South Bank, the big arts uh, center in the, on the south of the River Thames, right in the center of town. Now, we've had another, another war, and I think now, 70 years after the last one, or 80 years after the last one, we have the first chance of our generation to do something completely fresh and innovative, the first time in maybe, who knows, 100, 200 years, what's happening. Yeah. Mm. I was changing our lives. And who would have thought, Mike, when I saw you last, that in a few short weeks, we see the end of not only capitalism, but democracy. It's quite extraordinary. Mm. And that means the role of the artist becomes even more important. Uh, we all hey. live in cities. Yeah, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. I want to we see. all live in cities, which, which is hot and sweaty and expensive and dirty. And if, a, and if you take away the music, the art, the painting, the dance and the film, in the theater, they would become intolerable. Yeah, mm. it's Look, the arts that make it tolerable. Remember at Raindance when we had that industry talk, and those guys were keep talking about we needed the EU and we need the EU to to do deals with Chile, Chile, and everything. And I said, 
the the audience the only thing that ever changes society is cinema music and the arts those are the yeah. only so voting doesn't matter yeah no, it's true. Except I would argue that in America, <laughs> at the present moment, it does matter. <laughs> but maybe yeah. not. Maybe mm. maybe Biden is as big an asshole as Trump or whatever. I don't know. I don't want to go. Of course there. he is. He's a politician. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, it's kind of a strange era when you have so many people. Um, you, it doesn't matter if you're creative, educated, non-educated. A lot of people, instead of saying, yeah, I want to listen to this music, they're saying, I want to listen to this politician blather on and on and on. It's it's truly bizarre. You know, I've never experienced anything like it in my life. But wait, I, if I, I'm going to have to go in a minute. But yeah. if I look after 911, the American independent films I saw for about five years after that were very saccharine. There were reenactments to 911, reenactments from the terrorist point of view, from the police point of view, from the victims on the ground point of view. Oh my God, they were horrible. They were so horrible. <laughs> and the whole American independent um, cinema seemed to have come very self-aware and I can't explain it. But it took about five years to get over that. I'm hoping that following the pandemic worldwide, and I'm hoping following the political upheaval that's happening in America right now, I'm hoping that the filmmakers, both here in Britain, in America, and especially in Japan, uh, keep their heads and, 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 and give us something that we can learn from. Well, because cinema is such a powerful medium. Well, um, you know, I do a radio show. And recently, just recently, I've been getting so many submissions from musicians. And of course, it's easier to make a song than it is to make a movie. That's for sure. But yeah. um so many musicians, this is my song for the pandemic. This is a pandemic oh. love song. And I'm just so sick yeah. of it. It's like, yeah. no, this is banal. I, I yeah. can't stand this stuff. Yeah. Self-indulgent. Yeah. yeah. We're all hurting. And it's because we're all hurting doesn't mean that you're hurting more than I am. So shut the <laughs> fuck up and do something that takes our mind off of it, basically. Yeah, that's going to anyway. be a real challenge. But it's also going to be a boon. The first people, the first musician, the first filmmaker that finds a way to use the technology available to deliver a new experience that isn't a reflection of our selfishness, unless it's done very well, is going to have a, a, a whole new medium on their hands. That's what I see. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, maybe it, look, mm. look to the past to see what the creators after the First and Second World War, look at the social unheaval after the Vietnam War in America, for example. Look at the racial injustices. The uh, just the other night, uh, Trump in front of Mount Rushmore. Blatant sacrilege, Mount Rushmore was. It's all been hushed up. I, anyway, I'm getting I'm getting all emotional now. Matt, it's really lovely to to meet you, and great to see you again, Mike. Yeah. Please give me some links when this is up, so I can put it out on our channel. So. Yeah, there'll people. be links and there'll also be exclusive art with a rain dance on it. So everybody listening can check out Rain Dance, Rain Dance Film Festival on Twitter, on uh, Facebook, on Instagram. Uh, I, I found the best way is just to do a search engine. But Elliot, where can people go to find their Rain Dance needs? Well, if you send an email to info at raindance.com co.uk i actually monitor that account it's one of the things i do still i've been told that i am very accessible 
awesome. or an arts organization, and I want to keep it that way. No one's too small or too insignificant to attract my attention. So send me an email to that address. If I don't answer within a couple of days, it means I'm either sleeping or traveling. So please just resend it without any hesitation. I do get a lot of emails. All right. Yeah, and thanks, Elliot. And when am I going to be on your Twitter um, interview again? Okay, we've got to set that up. Like, <laughs> That's how you advertise people listening. That's how you network. <laughs> so, anyways, Elliot, thanks so much. Thanks, Elliot. You're a champ. Thanks, man. You're a gentleman. Yeah, and, you, and you, Matt. And thanks. And, maybe um, before your festival, then you can be on the show again. I don't know if you want to, but. No, I've, I, I love doing it. I love doing okay. stuff like this. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thanks. The past is the future. Saying, yes, yes. Do you want to hear my okay. COVID joke? Well, okay, oh, yeah. yes. Let's, Your let's, jokes are let's pretty good. Finish this interview with a wonderful joke from the fabulous organizer and creator of the Rain Dance Film Festival himself, Elliot. What year is it, guys? What year is it? Twenty twenty. That's yeah. a perfect vision, right? Twenty twenty, perfect vision. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's, that's that's the joke. It's not very funny. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, thanks, Elliot. Thanks for pretending to like me. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) No fakers here. Bye. 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 Donate to the Japanwood podcast by going to paypal.me forward slash japanwut. And that was Elliot Grove, everybody, the Canadian-born film producer responsible for the Rain Dance Film Festival. Pretty good stuff. Hope you could enjoy it. And again, that idea of creativity and entrepreneurial spirit combining with each other into the market. As I get older, as you know, it's my 40th birthday today. Thank you very much. Happy birthday to me. And the older I get, the more I realize it's more and more important. And he's very excited, Elliot, so is Mike is, about about these new digital technologies. A lot of people will go, oh, it's not the previous one. It's over. But uh, when the new technology arrives, it only opens up doors for those who are willing to pursue them. Uh, I'm more and more in that idea. Uh, But I also realized that we do need to look to the past. In the interview, Elliot said, look to the past. And I wanted to bring it up, but I got sidetracked. And, you know, the the conversation weaves and bobs and it goes where it goes. But in the past five years, I've I've met some heavy rollers. And some of them are very corporate people. And what shattered my illusion of the world is that a lot of the corporate people are, in fact, more creative than the creative people you see um, on, you know, with funky hair. And this was in the telecommunications industry, and the CEO of this company had collected a whole bunch of Japanese writings and poetry from some of the industry leaders from 150 years ago, who were looking at steam engines and coal and and engineers, not as a way 
to change society for the worse, but to transform society into something better. And those people did. They brought the technology, they adjusted the technology, and they implemented the technology and changed the country forever. Now, of course, we had wars, but we also had other things. And, you know, whatever. It's, it's, it's all in history. You know what I'm talking about. So that's going to be the podcast for today. Thank you for tuning in to Japan What Podcast. That's MatthewPMBigelow.com. Go there for your podcast needs. New art every week. And we appreciate you. So please like, subscribe, leave a comment. We are independent media in Japan. And the algorithms do not favor us. So every time you can give us a like, a share, or a comment on iTunes, it really does help. It boosts us up into the algorithms very quickly. Um, some of the charts we've been getting into, the top 10, top 5, um, have solely been because of that. And when I look at the top 20 in a lot of these um social media algorithm uh, calculators, most of them are just corporate, you know, like the, the, the NHK, the, the, the NTT, whatever kind of three-letter corporation you want to call it. We're managing to compete with some of them by now, and it's only because of your help that we're able to do so. So help us continue to make independent podcasting for English speakers in Japan. Hopefully it's tolerable. No, it is tolerable. Make it tolerable. <laughs> tolerable people. You've been listening to the Japan What Podcast. I've been your host, Matt Bigelow. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Blowing hot air out of the back end of Tokyo. I'm your, I'm your host, Matt Bigelow. Bye. I always wear my mask and wash my hands after going home.